And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to the inaugural episode of our new show, All of the Above. I am one of your co-hosts, Jeffrey Garrett, along with... Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. And we are very excited to have you today. We have a great show for you featuring two special guests at opposite ends of the educational spectrum. One, a young lady who's just beginning her career in the classroom. The other, a veteran educator who now trains the next generation of teachers. We're going to be discussing with them a very important issue about politics in the classroom. How much is too much when teachers bring their own politics into the classroom? But before we get there, we like to begin with a segment that we call the warm-up. All right. So in the warm-up, we take a look at the latest headlines in education, beginning with news that President Trump has re recently selected Mitchell Call Me Mick Zeiss as the Deputy Secretary of Education under Betsy DeVos. Now, Mick Zeiss is former superintendent of schools in South Carolina, and he took office in 2011, vowing to put an end to the Common Core. And like Betsy DeVos, he is a outspoken proponent of school choice and he does not like the Common Core. You'll recall that during the presidential campaign last year, uh, Trump mentioned wanting to bring an end to the Common Core. And this pick looks like it's along the lines of that. What do you think? Well, from the standpoint of this pick being particularly noteworthy, not a lot of news there, very much in line with the thinking of Trump and Betsy DeVos. From the standpoint about what this means for the future of the Common Core, slow down, hold your horses, it's not that easy. The Common Core standards, as we must remember, are adopted at the state level, not at the federal level. So it's not as though, as though with any pick or any wave of a hand, uh, Trump or any of his appointees could simply get rid of the Common Core standards. Right. So we'll see where this goes. It's already been rocky in the Department of Ed, and we'll see what the future looks like. Now, next up, we have some news about teacher pay in the state of California. Teachers in California may soon be paid as much as state lawmakers. That is, if a new ballot measure um, is passed and put on the November 18 ballot. Proponents of this initiative, call it called the Teacher Fair Pay Act, are busy gathering signatures right now and hoping that it will pass. If passed, it would require that teachers are paid the same amount as state lawmakers who typically earn $104,000 each year. Now, to pay for this increase, the measure would impose a 2% hike on the state sales tax. The initiative sponsor, a man named Mark Lichtman, says the pay boost is necessary, and it's necessary to attract mm. teachers um, into the profession, particularly mm. teachers in the very important areas of math, science, and special education. Now, Manuel, the big question here is, are you, sir, as a teacher, ready to ball out? I was born ready to ball out. Trust me on that. So for sure, that would be awesome. Um, however, this initiative has exactly 0% chance of passing uh, for a few reasons. First reason being a 2% hike in the sales tax. I don't think California's, California voters will go for that. I don't think voters anywhere will go for that if it's for teacher pay because a lot of people out there still are under the impression that teachers already have it easy somehow that we get summers off and and to be paid the same amount as lawmakers a six-figure income um, I don't think a lot of people are gonna agree with that 
Um, there is a place for us to discuss salary schedules and particularly uh, supporting newcomers to the profession or attracting newcomers to the profession. This initiative, however, I, I don't think it's going to pass. I'll be surprised to even see it on the ballot. Well, we'll find out, uh, hopefully in just a matter of a few weeks here, but it is an interesting proposal and perhaps one that's long overdue in terms of raising teacher pay in the state of California. Right. All right, so now we have news out of Berkeley and, well, according to a new poll by the Berkeley Institute of Global Studies and EdSource, registered voters in California say that creating a safe and positive school environment is more important than standardized test scores. Now, according to the poll, uh, respondents are more concerned with fights, bullying, and other forms of intimidation on campus and want to see California schools do more to create positive climates and particularly support students who are homeless and students whose family members are facing a threat of deportation under today's heightened federal policies of deportation. So all that being said, anything surprising there for you? Uh, not so much surprising. It very much resonates with what I think we as educators know, which is that the most important concerns that folks have about their schools really are about safety and peace on the school campus. Uh, it very much connects with what we know to be true about life in general, that um, in the real world, until our base needs are met, uh, food, clothes, shelter, safety, um, the other needs, which are important, um, certainly we, we cannot prioritize. So um, test scores, academic achievements, college acceptance rates, all very important, just not as important as the basic needs, which in school really include safety. Right. I totally agree. Um, shout out to Maslow. Hierarchy of needs. Study up on that. All right. Next, we turn to some news out of the state of Nevada. A high school in Nevada recently had their official Twitter account hacked. Uh, this resulted in a stream of profane and offensive messages uh, that started appearing on the school's Twitter page. Um, the school has about 2,600 students located just outside of the city of Las Vegas. Now, among the tweets were taunts about the school's very weak security system. Uh, there was a photo of a school administrator that was altered in a very vulgar way. Um, there were things like anarchist messages. Um, and, you know, this is perhaps a growing problem. Um, there was also recently a school in Florida that had their account hacked last spring. The tweets included uh, things as bad as racial hate speech. Um, and of course, today, most schools across the country have some sort of social media presence. This is one of the main ways that schools stay in contact with parents and other uh, members of the community. Manuel, thoughts about this issue? So when I first heard this news, I was hoping that the tweets would be something hilarious, like school council tomorrow, snow day, even though it's like 80 degrees out or something funny like that. But unfortunately, no, these were very serious messages and these were very hateful messages and very troubling. Um, and I think it's just a reminder that schools and not just schools, but us as individuals, we really got to make sure our social media and web presence is secure and make sure our passwords and, and login uh, authentication is as strong as possible because, I mean, these things are going to continue to happen. Yeah, I think the moral of the story is change your passwords. Indeed. Now, next we move to a segment we like to call the show and tell. And well, can you tell us what have you brought in for the class today? So for today's show and tell, I brought a ladder. And it's not just any ladder, it's the career ladder for educators. 
And it starts with student teaching, and the first few runs are the common classroom teacher moves. That includes commanding your own class, sponsoring an extracurricular group, possibly being a department chair or a union rep. Now, throughout my 14 years in the classroom, I felt the constant pressure from others, including my own students, to climb up this ladder. I met this dude as a master's student at Harvard. I always get the, oh, you went to Harvard? Why are you just a teacher? Why do you teach here? And I've gotten this pressure to climb this ladder for 14 years now. Educators know that the next few rungs of the ladder typically consist of being some sort of coach, a dean, a assistant principal, perhaps a move to the district office or some sort of consultancy. Now, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with those who climb this ladder. It's particularly important that those in formal leadership positions have some actual classroom teacher experience to inform their work. The real ones know that there's nothing more irritating than listening to some so-called expert who's never been in the classroom talk about what you should be doing in your classroom. So it's important that teachers do move into these positions in, at the district and beyond. In addition, I understand the need to earn more. Teachers are notoriously underpaid and these higher ladder positions are a legitimate way to improve one's own salary. So again, I absolutely understand why a teacher would leave the classroom for a position elsewhere on this ladder. However, as a proud 14-year teacher, I'm fed up with the notion that being just a teacher is somehow less important or less respectable than having one of the positions higher up on the ladder. In fact, I reject the whole notion that this vertical ladder should exist at all. In a recent article by NPR by Lee Hale, uh, he examined the phenomenon of teachers leaving the classroom in order to climb up this ladder and become administrators. In that article, a ninth grade geography teacher named A.J. Steele, shout out Mr. Steele, he was quoted as asking, why is it that the further away you get from the kids, the more money you make? Boom, that's it right there. The more money and titles you earn, the further away from the kids you seem to get, and I don't wanna drift away from them. For me, my drive, my enthusiasm, and my hope for change comes from my students themselves. I draw my energy from them, and I reject the notion that I have to move away from them in order to be a leader in education and affect change. I recently graduated, I recently earned my doctorate in education at UCLA, so shout out the EOP program, Dr. Durkin, Dr. Tyron Howard, and in my dissertation, I examined how classroom teachers could come together as agents of change to examine and address problems at their school sites. I found that if given space and opportunity, teachers can collaborate through action research and bring change to their sites. You don't need a title to be a leader, and you don't need to leave the classroom to have an impact on an entire site or an entire district. So I became, quote unquote, Dr. Rustin. And of course, since then, I've gotten more and more questions about when am I going to leave the classroom? Why are you still just a teacher? So for you classroom teachers out there, I want you to know that you're not just teachers either. You drive this whole system. You're a defender of our children. You're a fighter for our freedom. And you're the American hero. And there's no just about it. So I don't plan to leave my classroom anytime soon. I envision a school system where this ladder is laid down. And that's my show and tell for today. All right. Thank you, Manuel. That's a very powerful point and one I think you made eloquently. Uh, but the question I have is, as someone who uh, was a classroom teacher and then became a coach and then became an assistant principal and a principal, what are you trying to say, man? I mean, you, you are pretty high up on this ladder. I'm, I'm down here with the common folk, but, you know, <laughs> it's all love. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, in all seriousness, I think uh, it's a great point that you made and one that's very often overlooked uh, in our profession, and that's that teachers and what teachers do with students in the classroom every day is the heart and soul of our profession, and we would be remiss to forget that. True.
In today's seminar, we dive headfirst into a particularly complex topic at this moment in history. Polls, analysis of congressional votes, and even sheer common sense tells us that we are living in a time of deep political division and controversy over issues that strike at the very core of our democratic society. How should teachers handle discussions of politics in the classroom? And when it comes to bringing their own politics into the classroom, how much is too much? The times we live in are full of political issues that are simultaneously important components of students' education and intensely controversial. Climate change, tax reform, foreign policy, and immigration come to mind, but the list could go on for hours. At a time when the headlines are filled with things like Charlottesville, mass gun violence, escalating consequences of climate change, police killings of unarmed African Americans, indictments of key members of the presidential administration, the repeal of health care, the opioid addiction crisis, building a wall on the Mexican border, and a seemingly endless stream of tweets from the president that pour salt in the wounds of racism, sexism, and xenophobia, teachers are placed in the particularly complicated position of figuring out how to navigate the political minefield responsibly with their students. While there is, from our research at least, surprisingly little guidance offered to teachers on how to best answer these questions, there are quite strong opinions from scholars and practitioners alike. Diana Hess, Dean of the School of Education at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and Paula McAvoy, also a professor at Madison, are authors of the book, The Political Classroom, Evidence and Ethics in Democratic Education. From their research, the professors offer some guidelines and insights as to how teachers should approach teaching controversial political issues in the classroom. They cite politically controversial discussions as extremely valuable learning opportunities, quote, where young people are learning to deliberate about political questions, and then, through deliberation, students are learning about the issues. They're learning how to form arguments and how to weigh evidence, unquote. Their research showed that students both find these discussion, discussions highly engaging and they tend to learn a great deal, both content and skills, from participating in them. The authors then go on to note that the evidence suggests there are excellent teachers on both sides of the fence, those who bring their politics into the classroom and those who don't. Quote, we don't believe there is one right answer to this, and we think empirically we can show that there's not, unquote. The authors did note, however, that the distinction between issues that we should consider settled issues and issues that are open uh, is one that they suggest where there are some issues that are settled and shouldn't be taught uh, as open to the students. Doing so would be dishonest with young people. For example, the question about whether climate change is occurring, that's a settled issue. The question is actually what to do about climate change. That is an open issue. In an October 2016 Washington Post article, a group of 10 former state and national teachers of the year from states as disparate on the political spectrum as New York, Utah, Georgia, and Florida were quoted taking a strong stand that teachers must take a public stance on the 2016 election. As teachers, they said, we strongly oppose Donald Trump's candidacy for president. Our students and our country deserve better. In our two-party system, that means we must support Hillary Clinton. 
the only candidate with a legitimate shot to beat him. We believe that she will uphold the core American values of civility, equality, and dignity for all. Jeff, that sounds all well and good, and I would love to read the study by Hess and McAvoy when I have time, but this is an issue that's impacting classrooms right now. So across the country, we're dealing with teachers and schools that are in hot water for their politics in the classroom. In Maryland, a set of teachers were asked to take down their Women's March posters because school officials deemed them to be anti-Trump and too political. In New Jersey, a yearbook staff is in hot water for photoshopping out students' t-shirts that had any reference to Trump. And across the country, you have football players and cheerleaders being suspended, in some cases being kicked off teams for taking a knee during the national anthem in solidarity with NFL players who are protesting racial injustice. So when it comes to dealing with these issues in a concrete manner right now in the classroom, um, we figured we'd get some help and some input from some experts out there. So for our seminar, we've got some experts coming in to help us uh, dissect these issues and see really what a classroom teacher and a school administrator should do when it comes to bringing politics in the classroom. All right, so for today's seminar, we're joined by two very special guests. Seated to my right is Alyssa Solis, who's a student intern through the Cal State system, currently preparing to become a secondary science teacher. And to her right is Dr. Akita Kassane Long, who is a professor at the University of Laverne, currently working with the next generation of teachers. And word on the street is that she has an extensive career in education spanning 35 years in Los Angeles Unified, working at schools in South Los Angeles and Watts as both a teacher and a principal. Thank you both for joining us on Thank all you. of the above. Thank you. So to kick off uh, today's seminar, our first question is, uh, with this complex idea in mind, when teachers bring their own politics into the classroom, how much is too much? Well, <clears throat> I believe that teachers have a rare opportunity now um, in the political climate that exists. They have an opportunity to present the facts, and the facts are very evident that we have quite a controversial president who, um, you know, by many standards, people believe that um, he is a disservice to the office of the presidency. That's, that's the popular belief. 30, only 38% of the people think that he's doing it, an acceptable job. So even if we believe that Donald Trump is not serving the office of the presidency well, I think it's an opportunity for teachers to present the facts, present the tweets, present the news, and ask the children to weigh the evidence and create arguments for why this might not align with the values of our Constitution, why it might not align with the values that maybe the uh, founding fathers had in mind when they framed the Constitution. I think it's an absolutely outstanding teachable moment. And the more that the teachers can set the stage for children to, um, to consider those issues, the higher the level of instruction becomes. Yeah. I definitely think when a student asks you directly a question, they can tell when you're editing and they can tell when you're holding back. So my policy has been if a student asks you a question up front, you should be as open as possible with them, especially if it's a one-on-one -on -one encounter. I don't really know the limitations yet, since I'm such a new teacher, about using the classroom as a platform for crowbarring your political opinions into something, but I'm hoping that teachers can plan as often as possible to integrate it. But for me, so far, it's been one-on-one -on -one interactions. That's still something I'm trying to learn the balance. 
So I'm hearing you both uh, sort of describe that there is a place in the classroom for yes, examining absolutely. these issues yeah, and that a responsible education includes that. Um, you know, as we think about in this day and age, uh, so many complex uh, racially charged uh, issues, issues that touch on very sensitive issues of uh, gender and immigration. Um, does, does the line move at all in terms of what's acceptable for teachers to, to bring into the classroom of their own politics, um, or does it stay the same? You know, I always use the barometer of what would I want my own children to be exposed to. And let's just say, for the sake of argument, I was very, uh, our family was very proud of the fact that Barack Obama served eight years as a president. But let's say for the sake of argument that, that my grandchildren had a teacher that didn't feel that way. It would be really conflicting for that child to hear from their teacher who, you know, little kids, especially as, as an elementary educator, they believe everything that their teachers say. I would much prefer the facts be presented and that children could weigh on both sides of the issue as opposed to it being espoused from the teachers a belief. And I think that we owe the children that even if we don't like Donald Trump, which many of us don't, I would still want to present the facts and let the children be the ones to parse out what they believe as opposed to what um, they hear their parents say or mm. what I believe. I think that's the line is like giving them the choice of like, you can give your opinion, but say, I understand that other people think differently, but you can give the backing for why you feel that way. I do remember having a high school physics teacher who was a climate change denier, and he made it a central focus of our physics classroom. And it's all I remember about physics from high school is that my teacher thought climate change was not real, and we had to write a paper about what we believed. And it was just like so unrelated. And to him, there was no alternative. So I think the balance is allowing students to know that there is another opinion, but I'm gonna be real with you about what my opinion is. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we're a little lucky here the, pop, the student population here is, I have yet to meet a student who's a Trump supporter here. So I feel like it's easy for me to say, yeah, we can be as open as possible here if we go to another school district where there's a little more diversity of opinion politically. I don't know how I would deal with that. I think that's a really interesting point, an interesting example you bring up. Um, sometimes I wonder how much of our perspective on this is really ultimately self-serving. Right. If, if the viewpoint that's being brought into the classroom is one we agree with, then we're good. Mm. Uh, if it's an opposing viewpoint, if we were instead of in Los Angeles, if we were in uh, you know, rural Arkansas in a very conservative place, um, and instead of pictures of Barack Obama, there were pictures of Donald Trump on the wall, uh, you know, would we feel the same way about it? Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think it's an interesting mental exercise to, to grapple with that, right? What do yeah. we really believe versus what are we comfortable with because it agrees with us? I think that's a hard one to, um, you know, I, 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 again, go back to the example of my own um, grandchildren and would, would I have them in a place that would um, not reflect the values of the home and not mm -hmm. reflect the values that we're trying to raise them to believe. So I would, even in that example, I would try to have my children in places where their opinions would be valued and um, diverse schools of thought could be um, aired in an, in an impartial arena. 
So some would argue that because of these challenges and because of the difficulty in um, navigating these waters and having a physics teacher who is focused on climate change being a liberal myth or a myth from China, um, some would say that the best tactic would then be for teachers just to be apolitical. Just teach physics, don't go into politics, just stay out of it, just don't even divulge uh, your current thinking about any political issue. Is that possible? No. I, I think children, even young children, understand authenticity. And I think what they'll remember is that you weren't telling them the truth. Right. And yeah. so you have to come from a place of truth when you deal with children. And so to say, these are my values, these are the facts, here's one, one point of view, here's another point of view, let's discuss it so that you can integrate those two points of view into what you believe. I think that's how we, as servants of the public trust, serve our children best. But to pretend it doesn't exist, that's inauthentic. And classrooms aren't preparing students for the real world, it is the real world. So that is where those conversations need to happen. Yeah, yeah I'm, uh, you know, I think this, this question is a very powerful one because it always reminds me as a, as a former history teacher to think about the past, and I would argue we have lived through the a, the, the so-called apolitical era before, uh, when history was the story of wealthy, powerful white men, and that's what was taught in schools. Mm -hmm. um, and history did not include women, and history did not include people of color, and did not right. tell the indigenous history of, of the United States or other parts of the world. Um, a choice to ignore something is just as political of a choice I might offer. As, uh, as a choice to include something. Um, I don't know if there's an escape. Right. Mm -hmm, I agree. And I would add that, especially for teachers working in areas where they are teaching students from marginalized communities, when you are dealing with a climate where everything from immigration to gender and, and racism is a topic in the news every day and every night, um, as a teacher, if you're not addressing that, if you are staying silent or so-called neutral on these mm -hmm. issues, um, that silence is, is really loud to these students who are dealing with real trauma, uh, real anxiety, real uncertainty over these issues. Yeah. Uh, so as teachers, I think no matter uh, what your personal political views are, your duty is to help your students process these challenges that they're facing, especially if these are children from marginalized communities. So if you're not doing that, if you're just staying neutral and maybe playing it safe, that actually is adding a lot to the problem. I also think that we have a golden opportunity to teach the children about the other branches of government. Just because we're not uh, in agreement with the president doesn't mean that the other two branches of the government are not busy at work or balancing the power, which is what the Constitution uh, um, promises to us as right. American citizens. And so we have an opportunity to show them how in a democratic society the vote is what is the power and we can begin to begin to um, lead a grassroots movement of empowerment in marginalized communities letting them know that they have the powers in the ballot. Right. So then I'm curious, uh, Alyssa, for you, since you are currently in your teacher preparation program mm -hmm. and this is a very politically tense time, um, have any of these issues or the, just the general topic of a teacher 
and that teacher's political views in the classroom. Has any of that come up yet in your training? Yes, it has. I actually am in a very social justice oriented program. They advertise it as such. That's why I signed up for it. So it has a very self-selecting group of folks with a, of a certain political leaning. So I'm glad for that. And we had the conversation, but the conversation wasn't should you be political, it was how political can you be without getting fired? So they just like skipped over that conversation entirely. So I'm like really glad we're having, really glad we're having this conversation together um, because I was actually fired from a previous instructional aid position for my politics. So wish I'd had this, wish I'd had this conversation before then. But yeah, it was like assumed that you are a teacher and my program is only math and science teachers. So it is assumed that as a math and science teacher, you're going to embed this into your math and science classrooms. So that's a big part of what we're talking about. I can't speak for other programs though, right? right? So I don't know. Well, I mean, that's awesome because I think a lot of times, myself as a social science instructor, I think of how I can embed this into my social science instruction, which is for short has to happen because it's social sciences, but yeah. for your program to be math and science yeah. focused and also have um, that theme, that concurrent theme is, is amazing. Yeah, so they talked about climate change. Definitely, don't pre not presenting it as a 50-50 issue because it's not a 50-50 issue. And then more interestingly, like embedding eugenics into our genetics unit, mm. stuff like that, like how we can be more creative about um, the long struggles that we've had and embedding that into our science curriculum. Great. Yeah. So uh, I think something that I'm, I'm pulling from your comments today is this fundamental tension between a lot of the issues that we're grappling with in society right now and uh, the sort of basic nature of school. Schools tend to be a place where there's a certain universal set of values that whether you're in a, a liberal area or a conservative area, you know, we keep our hands to ourselves in kindergarten and we share nicely with others and we respect the dignity of all people. And there are policies on the books at the state level to, to support these things. And there's rules on the wall in classrooms to support these things. Um, and, and that's sort of the culture of school. But uh, in our society, we're seeing some very explicit promotion of other types of values, right? Um, we're seeing um, very noteworthy politicians um, uh, promoting the use of violence to resolve conflicts or mm. um, you know, saying that uh, there, there's space for a, an explicitly white supremacist ideology in our government, right? Um, and so when we have the kind of culture of school and then these things that are happening that are inconsistent with that, um, that seems to maybe put school at odds with some of the, the objectivity that we were just talking about. And I'm wondering to, uh, to get some of your thoughts about um, in an environment where we want to be neutral and pre presenting facts, um, but where these things are coming into conflict with school, how do we resolve this tension? Well, we teach children all the time that um, all adults aren't perfect. And sometimes adults make poor choices, even if it's the President of the United States, because women should always be respected. Gold Star families should always be honored. Um, blacks and browns have just as much right to the American system as any other people of color or, or not. And so we continue to say, these are the things that America represents. There may be people that operate within the context of America that don't represent what we believe to be true, but that's their choice. 
And it's a good thing because the United States is a place where we do have a choice. There's not um, someone saying that if you act this way, then you lose your rights. You act this way, you get heard, we don't agree, and we agree to disagree. It's not, uh, it's not a, it's not a um, totalitarianism. I think it's an opportunity, again, for us to show, us, show the children how democracy works. I agree, and I feel that a lot of social justice-oriented teachers are encouraging those conversations of saying, like, isn't that crazy what's happening out in the world so that we're not normalizing it? But I also see when I observe teachers that they'll encourage students to be critical of things that are so far away and like at the presidential level, but as soon as a student directs that attention towards something in our school community or something at the district level or in the city, suddenly I don't feel like teachers are as willing to engage in that conversation. Like when a student says, oh, this happened, like, oh, I think that teacher's racist. It's like, oh, we're gonna maybe cut that conversation short. I feel like it's a little scarier when the students are bringing up issues in our immediate community. And that's something I'd like to see teachers maybe try to take on a little more head on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In the abstract, it's easier to but get into the, the murkiness. But and, when it's uh, your coworker that students are talking about or something, suddenly these issues are like right in front of your face. Like, that's, that's a conversation that needs to happen too. But then the way we go about waging our, do we just identify and label people or do we work through a process? Mm -hmm. And is that process mirroring what it is that we're teaching our children how to be citizens in, in our nation? Yeah. Great, so there are resources that I'm aware of for teachers who need some support in navigating these political waters. For example, uh, teaching tolerance or facing history in ourselves. Um, do either of you have any either tips or suggestions for teachers who might be watching this who want to do something to support students and speak out against some of the bigotry and, and violence that's out there, um, but are maybe afraid because they don't want to be fired? I need resources. Give me resources. <laughs> I think it's, an, again, an opportunity to talk about what we can do as a community to, we, to rally um, support for voter registration and participating in the elections. and. Um, promoting um, active community citizenship um, because I think you know we see um, low voter turnout in areas it that suggests that they people do not feel empowered to make change through the democratic process and the more that we exercise those kinds of activities in the school even if it's conducting student government elections and having recycled recycling and ecological campaigns on our campus, we're showing them and modeling to students um, in the microcosm how to be um, democratic citizens in, a, in the larger world. Thank you. Well, unfortunately, we are at the end of our seminar for this episode. Um, we'd like to thank both of our guests. This is an ongoing discussion for sure, this topic of politics in the classroom. And uh, we definitely encourage anybody out there to add your comments and your perspective and shoot us your ideas um, as far as dealing with politics in the classroom. And we thank you both for appearing on All of the Above. And thank we you. thank our viewers for tuning in. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Wow, that was an excellent seminar discussion. Thank you again to our guests. And remember, if you have anything that you want to add or if you have any questions or comments about what was discussed, please reach out to us. 
So now it's time for a segment called The Assessment. And for that, I'm going to hand it over to Jeff. Thanks, Manuel. Now, I'm sure by now most of our viewers have heard about a recent tragic incident that took place at a high school in the Bronx, New York. Two students were stabbed by a third student, with one of the young men being seriously injured and one even tragically losing his life. The incident took place on a school grounds in a classroom. The young man who committed the stabbing is reported by several news outlets to have been the victim of some form of harassment or bullying, possibly because of his expression of gender identity or sexuality. Now, this is a tragic incident to be sure. And in our schools, we have the highest interest in ensuring that the safety and security of all young people is protected. But as is predictable, this incident has ignited a firestorm of calls for ramped up security at not only that school, but schools in New York City and schools across the country in general. Immediately following the incident, the school was said to have become a veritable Fort Knox with metal detectors installed and heavy police presence. Both the school and the New York City Department of Education have come under scrutiny in the media for not having had metal detectors at the school prior to the incident. And of course, the city's inconsistent policy for use of metal detectors has come under broad public scrutiny and discussion. Now, first, I'd like to say that we are right to be examining questions of what can and should be done to ensure safety of our most precious possessions, our own children, our own future. After such a significant tragedy takes place, that's only right. Second, unlike what has taken place around tragic gun crimes and school campuses, the fact that this horrible killing took place with a knife seems to have actually made space for us to have this much needed discussion about an important issue. So if there is a silver lining, perhaps this is it. Now, as I see it, the real question we are faced with is what is the best system or set of systems we can put into place to ensure that something like this doesn't happen again? And in response to that question, I would encourage us all to think not just about measures of control and policing in our schools, but about what we can do to make schools look, feel, and be the safe place we want it to be. Now, as a former educator in New York City, I worked in schools that had metal detectors and schools that didn't. And I can tell you that there is a fundamentally different tone to the experience one has when walking into a building uh, and your first experience at 7.30 in the morning or 8 in the morning is waiting in a long line outside the building to get through scanning, then walking through a small platoon of safety agents, having your belongings scanned or searched, having to remove everything from your pockets, having to walk through a metal detector or be wanted by a school safety agent. That's a fundamentally different experience than one has when you're simply walking into the doors of a school, saying hello to an administrator or a staff member on duty, perhaps signing in and getting a visitor sticker and going about your business. Now, I would urge us to remember that the most powerful means of teaching we have for our children is our own lived example. If we want our kids to feel that they are loved, that they are cared for, that we want them to uh, to be in school, and that we don't want to think of them as suspects or potential perpetrators, then we have to ensure that our treatment of them actually reflects that. 
We are right to want to do everything we can to protect our children, and school systems should face high public accountability to do everything possible to ensure safety. But surely we have better tools at our disposal than equipping our schools with the infrastructure of jails and courthouses. Here in Los Angeles, for example, the school district maintains a policy of random searches for secondary school students. It has become, in recent uh, times, a hotly contested issue as the policy was instituted after two killings that took place on school campuses way back in 1993 in quick succession. Since then, the policy was largely tolerated but also mostly unexamined. However, over the last year or two, a coalition of community groups aligned with the teachers union, the ACLU, one of the major charter operators here in the district, um, all have banded together to challenge the regulation, citing concerns about damaging uh, school culture and its disproportionate impact on poor black and Latino students. The policy's unintended effect um, of diverting time and energy and resources away from supporting students, away from learning and growth to an intrusive form of overcriminalization on our children is an important question we must grapple with. Tasking educators with carrying out the functions of law enforcement is a risky proposition. In doing so, we risk damaging the most important currency in schools, and this is particularly true in schools that serve low-income populations and communities of color, and that currency is relationships. For as many tragic incidents that do happen in and around our schools, any educator will tell you that in schools where culture is healthy and adults and kids have strong positive relationships, many more potentially dangerous incidents are prevented because students confide in the adults they know care about them and they look for ways to prevent these sorts of things from happening. If we maintain policies that undermine these healthy school cultures and positive relationships, between students and the adults charged with caring for them, then we in fact undermine the very effort to ensure safety and peace on our school campuses. While the motivation of those who advocate for metal detectors and random searches may be well-intentioned, I would question the practical usefulness of these strategies. We don't teach young people to be good, upstanding, righteous members of a community by treating them as though they are the opposite of that. We teach young people these things by inspiring in them their very best and modeling for them what we want to see. Thank you, Jeff, for that very important message and very timely message. And I know that as a classroom teacher, school safety has always been a primary concern. And we want a safe, positive classroom campus or classroom environment and safe, positive campus. However, we don't want students to feel like they're entering a police state when they're coming to school. And I've seen students be handcuffed for the slightest of reasons right outside my own classroom door. And that's not the type of environment we want to have. So again, thank you for sharing your thoughts about that. All right, so with that being said, it's almost time to dismiss class, but real quick, I want to give a quick shout out to Aaron Ferguson of Pacifica High School, AOB in the house, and Alexis King of Ruben S. Ayala High School. They were each recently awarded the Milken Educator Award, which is an acknowledgement that comes with a $25,000 prize and national recognition for their amazing work as classroom teachers. So congrats to you both, and definitely let us know if you need any help spending that cash. Also, for a full list of this year's recipients, visit MilkenEducatorAwards.org. These recipients are doing amazing work all across the nation, and congrats to them all.
Thank you again for joining us today on our episode. Uh, we just want to remind you all the above is a community. So join the conversation. Like our page, follow us, make sure you leave your thoughts and questions. We just might get into them on our next episode and we will make sure to see you then. Class dismissed. Get out of here.